Hi, I'm Elizabeth Kramer from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre here at the University of Sydney. And with me today is Edward Aspinall, who will be talking to us about the country of Indonesia. Ed is here as part of our Politics in Action event, um, which will be held tomorrow. Hi, Ed. Thanks for being here with me. Hi, it's great to be here. Uh, before we begin, would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and research in Indonesia? Right. So um, I'm from the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Studies at the Australian National University, Asia-Pacific Affairs, I should say. Um, and I've been conducting research on Indonesia for the last, well, two or three decades, really, since I began my PhD long ago. Um, and over that time, I've worked through various topics to do with Indonesian politics in the early years about my main focus was on opposition and social movements. Then I did quite a bit of research on um, the conflict and peace process in Aceh. More recently, I've been uh, focusing on issues to do with electoral politics, clientelism, uh, vote buying, things like that. So all the hot topics in Indonesia. Well, that's one way of putting it. Um, so just jumping into my first question for you, Ed. Uh, Indonesia, as most of the listeners will probably know, has just held its uh, annual, uh, sorry, five-year na nationwide elections. So that was on the 17th of April. Um, and that incorporated the legislative uh, elections at the national provincial and local level, as well as the presidential elections, uh, which were um, this year between the incumbent Joko Widodo and the second time challenger Prabowo Subianto. So what are your thoughts on the campaign that occurred up until the election? And what do you think that these campaign campaigns say about Indonesia's democracy more generally? Yeah, so in some ways, the election yeah, for people who've been watching Indonesian politics for a long time, in some ways the elections this year was not one of the more interesting elections we've seen um, because it, everyone expected that Joko Widodo, the incumbent, uh, would be re-elected. In fact, for a long time the polls were predicting that he would have a pretty comfortable lead and the results um, so far show that he's come out ahead pretty much to the degree uh, at, at, at the sort of numbers that was uh, predicted by the polls for many months actually. Moreover, it was a contest between two players we saw um, compete last time. So in that regard as well, it seemed to be uh, offering a uh, little more than a repeat of um, uh, a previous competition. And again, we, we thought the outcome was uh, uh, pretty certain. Um, and to some extent, it has kind of the election that we saw did uh, keep to the script and the overall outcome was not particularly surprising. Um, but nevertheless, it was a really important election when we think of the immediate backdrop. So the last few years in Indonesian politics have been characterised by a growing polarisation about socio-religious issues. The trigger was the removal from office some years back um, of, well, a couple of years back, of the uh, ethnic Chinese and Christian governor of Jakarta, a man called, popularly known as Ahok, um, on charges that he had insulted religion by raising issues about the use of a particular Quranic verse which was used to call on Muslims not to vote for him. And from that time, there's been a lot of polarisation about these sorts of religious issues. And that played into the election campaign to a large degree, insofar that many of the Islamist groups who'd mobilised against Ahok uh, a couple of years ago threw their weight behind Prabowo Subianto. And many of the pluralist uh, groups, so that includes members of religious minorities, but also uh, more syncretic or more traditionalist Muslims 
really um, threw in their lot behind uh, Joko Widodo. And the election result was, was as well actually highly polarised. So it was not just that there was a, you could see evidence of this polarisation during the course of the election, but the results uh, actually as they came in on election day showed that in most of the areas that um, Jokowi had won uh, in 2014, he won by an increased margin this time around. So in areas with a lot of Christians, for example, or Hindus like Bali, or also um, the big provinces of Central and East Java, where a lot of members of Nadatul Ulama, the traditionalist Islamic organisation, live, he increased his margin. But in those areas that Prabowo had won in 2014, so these are mostly Muslim areas outside of East and Central Java, so West Java, Bantan, big uh, provinces in the west of Java, uh, but also provinces in Sumatra and other places of Indian, outside Java, uh, Prabowo increased his margin. So the result is, in Indonesia, that's much more polarised, uh, at least in the presidential elections, along religious lines, basically. Mm -hmm. And I think that polarisation also plays out in the reaction to the post-election quick count. Um, which was, uh, to some people, quite controversial. So um, most of the um, organisations that conducted quick counts um, quite soon after the election uh, was closed identified Jokowi and his running mate, Marif Amin, as the winners, but um, there was also some backlash um, to that as well. So can you talk us through um, the reaction to the quick counts and what you think that says about the two different presidential camps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so part of the background here as well is in some degree this is a repeat also of 2014. So Prabowo Subianto, for listeners who aren't aware of his background, he's a former general from the late Suharto period with quite a, um, a bad record on human rights at that time. Um, and he's really presented himself as a sort of authoritarian populist candidate, so promising tough leadership, um, saying that Indonesia or Indonesian people are being betrayed by their corrupt elites and mm. he's, he he's going to sort of be the broom that's going to sweep all that aside. But part of that playbook has been a sort of questioning of the election results. So when these various polling institutes, I forget the exact number now, came out with these quick count results on election day indicating that uh, Jokowi had won and by around, you know, the estimates vary, which was what you'd expect within the margin of error, um, uh, but showing that Jokowi had won comfortably, um, he immediately countered with a, a so-called uh, quick count of his own, suggesting that he had won. And, it, and this basic contestation has dragged on in the over succeeding weeks as the official count has been carried out by the uh, Indonesian Elections Commission. And I mean, it is, it is problematic. I mean, the whole purpose, or one of the purposes of doing quick counts is in fact to um, preempt the possibility of fraud in the, electoral, in election, in a, in the actual formal uh, process of counting elections. And for those who don't know what a quick count is, basically a polling institute will take a random selection of polling, um, uh, polling places, count the votes coming in from there, and that then gives you a pretty solid estimate within a margin of error, as you would with any sort of similarly uh, similar uh, process of statistical mm. sampling. Um, and it's a fairly accepted practice around the world. It happens in a lot of countries. Very accepted. Um, happens in many countries. And moreover, the various polling institutes that did this time, in general, have a really excellent track record. You know, they're quite sophisticated in their um, 
statistical sampling methods in the sort of the rapid communication of the results from the, their field officers into the centre and so on. So we really can be pretty confident uh, in their capacity to deliver. Um, uh, and their neutrality action. as well, to yeah. some extent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so the fact that Prabowo and some of the parties and the leaders of the parties who supported him have continued to question the results is a problem actually for the sustainability in the long run of, Indone of Indonesian democracy because after the core institution of democracy is elections, you know, the capacity of the population to choose their leaders through free and fair elections, and once the legitimacy of the electoral process is undermined, well that can be pose a serious long-term threat to Indonesian democracy. We don't know what proportion of Prabowo's supporters agree with his questioning of the legitimacy of the, of the count, uh, but if it's a large number, then that is a, that's a problem for Indonesian democracy going forward. And the official results from the Indonesian Electoral Commission haven't yet been finalised, have they? They haven't quite been finalised, but as we speak, um, the, uh, the various provincial branches of the Electoral Commission are going through what they call recapitulation, so uh, finalising uh, their counts. And it looks like the results are pretty much in line with what the quick counts predicted on election day, so around 56 to 44. So Jokowi had a slight improvement, not a great improvement, but a slight improvement on his result from 2014. And so, uh, assuming that does become the official result, um, have there been any indications from the Prabowo camp about what actions they will take in response to that, given that they have... Um, basically rejected the quick counts up till now and are claiming that they have won a majority? Well, there have been various um, uh, calls made from, you know, ranging from uh, constitutional court challenges through to uh, people's power movements on the street. You know? And this is also problematic because on the, on the other, uh, at the same time, one of the big trends we saw over the last few years in response to this polarisation was growing willingness on the part of the government to use repressive measures against um, basically critics of the government who come from the Islamist camp. And we've seen this started, starting to happen uh, in the aftermath of election as well. So, for example, some of the people who've been calling for people power have been uh, accused of makar, of treason, and the police have started to get involved in some of those cases. So it looks as if this might be another you know, step forward. I mean, we don't want to be dram overdramatic about this, but another step uh, in the path of Indonesia, the, the slow decline of the quality of Indonesian democracy. Mm. And much of the international attention for this election was focused on the presidential um, race and what was happening at the national level, but I know you were um, in Indonesia doing fieldwork more at the local level. So what would you say about the elections from your observations um, on the ground in Indonesia in different electorates? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting um, and it's challenging for us as analysts because on the one hand, at the level of the presidential election, the politics were quite polarised, as I said before, um, and many voters and um, supporters of the two candidates were quite passionate about this and have very strongly held um, views about the place of Islam versus pluralism and so on in Indonesian democracy. Um, but uh, at the same time, there were these massive parliamentary elections as well. Um, and very often the candidates for seats in parliaments, both at the national level, the district levels, the provincial levels, thousands and thousands of candidates, 
were often trying to distance themselves from that polarisation because you might be from a, a party uh, which at the national level is affiliated with candidate A for the presidency, but you might be in a region where most people support candidate B, for example. So, in fact, a lot of the sort of the micro-level politics around campaigning in the communities tended to really steer clear from a lot of that polarising politics around uh, socio-religious religious identity. And there was still quite a lot of, um, uh, you know, politics of sort of social networks, of patronage, uh, including vote buying. It's still quite widespread at the grassroots, but, but also rather unpolarised at that level. Mm -hmm. And would you say that in terms of trends uh, between 2014 and 2019, that those sort of vote buying and patronage um, uh, traits of the local elections remain pretty much the same, or have there been any changes that you noticed? It's pretty um, stable, I think. I, I was part of a big research team that studied these systematically in 2014. We didn't have such a big research effort uh, this year. But a number of the colleagues I work with in those times did take uh, the time to, to send me their observations. The general impression I have is that the practices remain the same, but there's more effort to hide them this time around. That there was a sense on the part of many of the politicians that the authorities were not exactly starting to crack down, but there was more... Mm, efforts to prevent uh, vote buying. And indeed, we see, did see a number, you know, not more than about a dozen or so arrests of candidates uh, involved in vote buying. So it wasn't quite as open as it was last time, I would say. I say that's the, big, the biggest difference, but in terms of the quantum, I don't think there's a lot of evidence that it had declined. Okay, well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you for your time, Ed. Great. Nice to talk to you.